What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Stocks can't seem to string together a rally here. Energy concerns and slowing growth signs are sending the Dow lower again today. Although this time, tech isn't leading the declines. Energy actually is. And Bitcoin is bouncing up to 55K. We'll take a look at why all of this is taking place. And Vladimir Putin swoops in to say he'll save Europe from its energy crisis. That's got nat gas plummeting 8% after a huge spike earlier on. It's why energy is now underperforming. But is the worst really over? And in rapid fire, we'll cover everything from airlines to retail, restaurants and tech, the names to buy and to avoid. But we begin with these markets. Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Kelly, I miss rapid fire so much, but I get the pleasure of joining today. So I'll see you later on for rapid fire as well. But that market story that Kelly just laid out, the energy story is very interesting because not only is it the nat gas drop here, Crude oil also dropping today, worse than expected supply numbers. I should say bigger than expected supplies in the U.S., bringing those prices a little bit more under pressure. That's causing some underperformance here in the Dow overall. It's off about three quarters of 1 percent, 250 points to the downside. That's well off the session lows, by the way. The S&P 500, 43.16 the last trade there, off about two thirds of 1 percent. And the outperformer down by only half a percent, 67 points is the Nasdaq composite, 14,366 the last trade there. Where we have seen some action, some buying the dip, so to speak, has been in parts of the social media complex. But first, let's talk a little bit about the emerging markets here, because we've talked a lot about this notion that certain key parts of the U.S. market are under pressure. Take a look at this ETF that tracks the emerging markets, ticker EEM. It's off one and a quarter percent today. Right now, at one point, we're at the lowest levels in about a couple of months here. If we go any lower than that today, it'll be all the way back to November of last year, that emerging markets trade coming in under pressure for a number of reasons, not the least of which is a continuing strengthening U.S. dollar relative to other currencies around the world. So watch the emerging markets. And I mentioned those facial social media stocks as well. We're seeing a bit of a bid return to some of those names. Look at Twitter up 2% bouncing. Snap up about one-third of 1%. Same with Pinterest overall. Facebook's loss down about a half a percent. Headline risk still there. Facebook's loss is perceived to be the relative gain for folks like Twitter, Snap, and Pinterest. So watch those social stocks. They've been volatile in trading around Facebook headlines. We'll see if that kind of inverse relationship keeps up, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Well, yesterday's rally now seems like a short burst of positive sentiment as markets take a leg lower today with rising yields and inflation concerns weighing. But my next guest says there are opportunities in the two sectors, tech and home builders, that are falling on rising rates. And his value fund's performance is trouncing the S&P this year. Joining me is Bill Smead. He is Smead Capital Management Chief Investment Officer. Bill, it's great to see you. We've talked a lot about the home builders, so tell me about tech where you see some opportunities. Well, in tech, we were looking for opportunities to avoid stock market failure. And, and you, you've got a setup here, Kelly, where the money is crammed into tech in three different forms. It used to be 
one form. It was tech stocks. Now it's technology, communication services, et cetera. And, and people are like lambs being led to slaughter in these high price to sales ratio stocks. We're, we're, not, we're not recommending anything in tech currently other than eBay. And we like eBay because it is a Rodney Dangerfield of tech. It never gets any respect. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense, though, because when I saw tech, I'm thinking to myself, that's not the Bill Smith I know. So to be clear, you still think there's a lot of room for downside. How much downside and can markets continue to rotate uh, away from tech and into the parts that you like uh, without an, a, a bigger overall disturbance? That's a wonderful question. Uh, John Locke, the great philosopher, uh, had the law of fashion. I don't think investors really understand how important the law of fashion is to the way they invest, right? People like to be reinforced by knowing the people around them agree with them. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, just as a general rule, if you want to make a lot of money in the stock market over a long period of time, the best way to do it is in businesses that no matter how well they do, people never get very excited about them. Now, Facebook is working their way that direction. They they might become the new Philip Morris, right? Philip Morris was vilified. The original ESG was taking cigarette commercials off the broadcast networks in the late 60s. And then they got uh, Philip Morris got vilified and they were the best performing stock in the next 40 years. So they're on their way to getting there, but most of them are not close to being vilified. Uh, at some point, Elizabeth Warren will have Occupy Palo Alto going. Right. And I, again, this is all why you think antitrust becomes kind of a, a bigger headwind here, maybe even than interest rates for a lot of these stocks. And we know you're staying away from them. We know you still like the home builders. Let me talk to you about oil stocks, because there's two ways to look at this right now. And I think Exxon's a perfect example. We have oil prices back to 2014 levels. Back then, Exxon was one of the biggest companies in the world. Today, its market cap is a third of Tesla's. Now, I know you'll take issue with the market cap of Tesla, but point being, Exxon's only worth $250 billion. It's like the size of a you know, chip maker these days. Um, you think, yeah. some think, that there's a catch-up trade, that the stocks are going to catch up to the oil price. Others think that there is going to be a secular decline in oil demand starting in a very few years, and that's why these oil companies will never be the size they once were. Where do you come yeah, down to, on that? Boy, you, you have hit the nail on the head, Kelly, as usual. So, so if you, Buffett says the people that think we're going to make a quick transition away from carbon-based fuels and the people that think we're never going to make a transition are both crazy, hmm. right? So, so the point is there are only eight ways to make electricity in the United States. Three of them, the ways that dominated the last 50 years, were hydroelectric, coal-fired, and nuclear. And, and Saturday Night Live doomed nuclear back in, in 1979 on the Three Mile Island spill. So the way they make it now is geothermal slash steam, solar, wind, natural gas, and, and uh, combustion, right, using gasoline. Bill, well, one second. F- I just have to interrupt you for a, a moment here. Actually, President Biden is in the middle of meeting with business leaders about the debt ceiling. I think we can listen in. And Raython. And uh, for joining me today to talk about the need to raise the debt limit. We haven't failed to do that since our inception as a country. We need to act. These leaders know the need to act. The United States pays its bills. It's who we are. It's who we've been. It's who we're going to continue to be, God willing. That's what's called the full faith and credit of the United States. Let me be clear. Raising the debt limit is paying our old debts. There's nothing to do with new spending or what may be coming this year or other years. 
There's nothing to do with my plans on infrastructure or building back better, both of which are paid for, but they're not even in, uh, in the queue right now. It's about paying for what we owe and preventing a catastrophic event occurring in our economy. I'm glad these leaders are here to talk about the real world impact this is going to have on people and on our position in the world. Today's discussion won't be partisan. It shouldn't be. Raising the debt limit is usually bipartisan. Let me speak for myself here. I want to be clear so the American people understand what's going on. There's a Senate vote today to raise the debt limit. Traditionally, it needs only 50 votes. I was we were informed by our Republican friends that they had to be all Democrat votes. They weren't going to help. I said, OK, we'll provide 50 votes. The definition in the Democrats, we have the votes. The Democrats are willing to step up and stop this economic catastrophe if Senate Republicans will just get out of the way. But our Senate Republican friends are planning to block the vote to raise the, the debt limit by using a pr the procedural power called the filibuster. To say that in plain English, it means <clears throat> you have to have 60 votes <clears throat> when there's a filibuster. 60 votes, a supermajority instead of 50 to get anything done. It's not right and it's dangerous. The reason we have to raise the debt limit is in part because of the policies of the previous administration, which incurred nearly $8 trillion in bills in four years, some of which Democrats voted for. More than a quarter of all the debt now outstanding. We had to raise the debt limit three times when Donald Trump was president. And the Republicans moved to raise it each time, and each time the Democrats supported the effort to raise the debt. But now Republicans won't raise the debt limit despite being responsible for what the debt limit, why it has to be raised, for the bills that are outstanding. They won't raise it enough through, uh, if they've done, we're going to be defaulting on a debt that would lead to self-inflicted wounds that risk the market tanking and wiping out retirement savings and costing jobs. The falling on the debt, which Secretary Yellen said could happen at any day after October the 18th, as <clears throat> we run out of money, means that Social Security benefits will stop. Salaries to service members will stop. Benefits to veterans will stop. And much more. The failure to raise the debt limit will undermine the safety of the United States Treasury securities, threaten reserve status of the dollar as the world currency and the, that the world relies on, downgrade America's credit rating, and result in a rise in interest rates for families talking about mortgages, auto loans, credit cards. My friends, and there are many of my friends, the Senate Republicans' position I find to be not only hypocritical but dangerous and a bit disgraceful, especially as we're crawling our way out of a pandemic that cost America 700 thousand lives thus far, and we're still battling it. Our markets are rattled. America's savings are on the line. The American people, your savings, your pocketbook are directly impacted by this stunt. It doesn't have to be this way. My Republican friends need to stop playing Russian roulette with the U.S. economy. If they don't want to do the job, just get out of the way. We'll take the heat. We'll do it. We will do it. Let us do it. Let the Democrats vote to raise the debt limit without obstruction or any further delays. House Democrats have already passed the bill 
that would do that, raise the debt limit and keep the government functioning. It's sitting in the United States Senate right now where Democrats, with no help from Republicans, have the votes today to pass the debt limit. The path Republicans offer would take us right to the brink and cause irreparable economic damage, in my view. So let's vote and end this mess today. That's the only way to eliminate the uncertainty and risk that will remain for American families and our economy if we don't. Over more than 200 years, America's built this hard-earned reputation of the strongest, safest, and most secure investment in the world. And that's why the United States is the financial rock the world looks to and trusts. Now, in one cynical, destructive partisan ploy, just for politics, Republican friends are teetering on the brink here. They're threatening to boot that all away. Now, it's a meteor headed to crash into our economy. We should all want to stop it. Stop it immediately. This shouldn't be partisan. And I'm thankful for the leaders who share the urgency on why, uh, why we need to act. We need to act now. Many of them are here with me. Not, not, not next week. Now. Look forward to hearing from their, their perspectives, and, and we'll now get, uh, get this meeting started with uh, my uh, colleague's permission. I'd like to start off, if I may, with a question for uh, Jane Fraser, the CEO of Citi. And by the way, congratulations on your award. Uh, you run uh, one of the largest banks in America. And what impacts uh, are you seeing, or do you think you'll see, from this obstruction. What does it mean for the small businesses and everyday people if we, if we renege on the debt here? Um, thank you, Mr. President, for inviting us all to talk about this critical issue. Um, as the head of the bank, I don't have insight on what the right legislative solution is. But I can tell you that from an economic perspective, we need to resolve this issue very quickly. Uh, every day of delay right now comes at an increasing price as we've begun to see in the markets already starting last Friday. Um, America simply cannot default on the debt because the U.S. Treasury market is the bedrock of our financial system domestically and, and globally. And defaulting is going to cause lasting damage to the credibility of the United States with investors and in financial markets around the world. But as you say, the ramifications are not limited to the markets. Um, it's already beginning to cause some damage in the economy. It will hurt consumers. It will hurt small businesses. And it's not an exaggeration to say that even small distortions in the Treasury market can cost taxpayers tens of billions of dollars over many years. Um, consumers can be burdened with higher borrowing costs very quickly, um, whether they're putting something on a credit card or they're getting a mortgage. Um, and for small businesses trying to recover from the pandemic, um, this comes at a very critical time. So we just can't wait to the last minute to resolve this. Um, we are simply put playing with fire right now. And our country has suffered so greatly um, over the last two years, the human and the economic cost of the pandemic has been wrenching. And we don't need a catastrophe of our own making to undermine the progress that is underway. So we really urge the administration and Congress to do what's necessary to resolve the situation for the good of our economy, for the good of our country. 
Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. And you make a very good point uh, that we're, uh, God willing, I think we're just about to begin to turn the corner again on the pandemic. An awful lot of small businesses, tens of thousands of them, have acquired significant debt. We provide a significant relief as well, but it, there, it, it just, it's just an incredibly complicating feature. Um, I'd like now, for, with her permission, I'd like to ask uh, uh, Dina Friedman, the CEO of NASDAQ, whether she'd be willing to give us her thoughts. And thank you for taking the time, Ms. Friedman, for, to, to talk to us. Well, Mr. President, thank you very much for the opportunity to address the current situation. We are starting to experience elevated volatility in the markets, which can be partially attributed to the uncertainty that's been introduced by the delay in approving the extension of the debt limit. We would expect that a continued delay in extending the debt limit would further destabilize the markets. And when we consider the broader economic cost of the uncertainty and certainly a possible default, we would, as Jane mentioned, um, see higher bar borrowing costs for consumers and small businesses, as well as delays um, in much-needed payments to, uh, to major social programs such as Social Security, Medicare. So when we look at this, um, these delays and certainly a default would mean that hardworking Americans will ultimately bear the burden. So as you mentioned, the extending the debt limit simply allows the payment of obligations that have already been made by the U.S. government. Therefore, voting to extend the debt limit is an important bipartisan action to reinforce the full faith and credit of the United States. And we urge that we urge action as quickly as possible. So thank you. Let me ask you the uh, DEFCOM 10 question. If we don't, if, if, we, if we default, even for a day or two, what, what do you think the impact on the market will be? I think that we would expect that and investors really just don't handle uncertainty well. Um, and I think that investors and and certainly, as we know, there are hundreds of millions of investors that are involved in the markets today that have put their hard working, their hard, their hard earned savings into the markets. And we would expect that the markets will react very, very negatively if if we actually get to a point of a DEFCON 10 type of situation with the default. What does that do to uh people's uh, retirement accounts. Yeah, I, I think we have to realize that well over half of the uh, adult Americans have money in the stock market, either directly or indirectly. And so those savings accounts, those retirement accounts, the pensions, they'll all experience a significant sharp drop in their values, which of course makes them feel less certain about their ability to, to manage their lives and their savings and, and plan for retirement. Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't mean thank you for the result, but thank you for <laughs> explaining to people who are watching us how consequential this is. You know, uh, uh, I see old buddy Jamie Dimon up there, J.P. Morgan. Jamie, uh, excuse me for calling you Jamie, uh, Mr. Uh, CEO. Um, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, why, from your perspective, do we need to raise the debt limit immediately before October 18th? Mr. President, thank you. You can call me Jamie. That's fine. And uh, you appreciate you having us all here. Mr. President. Um, anyway, there are five quick points I want to make. Number one is really a morality point. We all teach our children that we're supposed to meet our obligations. I, I don't think the nation should be any different. 
Number two, we should never even get this close. There are huge economic costs already being borne by companies and lawyers trying to figure out what this means if something like this ever happens. It's already affecting the stock market, et cetera, as you've heard from some of the folks here. Number three, we should get rid of the debt ceiling. Uh, we don't need to have this kind of brinkmanship every couple of years. Uh, number four, an actual default. An actual default would be unprecedented. We, the things we know that it would do are very bad, uh, and it could be potentially far worse. The effects would be cascading. So day one would be bad, but the cascading effects in the ensuing weeks could go anywhere from a recession to a complete catastrophe for the global economy. And I don't know why anyone would take a chance like that. Uh, and number five, uh, America's role in the world is essential. We are the bedrock. The American Treasury is the bedrock. Um, our credibility, it, we're being watched right now by our allies and unfortunately our enemies. Our credibility is absolutely essential. Trust in America and the U.S. dollar and the financial system is critical to the world economy and eventually actually world peace. So this is a time I think we should show American competence, not American incompetence. Well, I'm glad you raised that last point, because uh, when I got back from the G7 and subsequently with a number of virtual meetings with my colleagues and heads of state, um, I know Brian Moynihan knows about this as well. We are not only being measured in terms of our strength and our reliability based upon the size of our military and or the physical strength that we possess, but it's on whether or not we can function. There's a great debate going on, and I'm not exaggerating this. All of you deal internationally. There's a great debate going on whether or not in the 21st century, in the second quarter of the 21st century, can democracies function with things moving so rapidly? And I can tell you a couple of the folks I've had a lot of spent a lot of time with uh, of late, Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi Jinping, they really believe that uh, autocracies are the only way forward because they can act quickly and decisively. It's not a joke. And we're seeing effects of this around the world. And I don't know. It's it's I don't know. It's understandable why the average American wouldn't understand what the consequences of this will be for American security and the willingness of other countries to follow our lead. We have always led the world, not just by the example of our power, but the power of our example. And that's going to be called in a severe question. I mean, for real, for real, and it has consequences that are con real. What does, you know, Jamie, what, what does further delay mean for a company like yours and the family you serve? If we just, even if we just go on right up to the brink, we start on Monday. We're going to start reviewing all our contracts, repo, collateral requirements. Uh, there will be huge demands of people selling treasuries, wanting financing of treasuries. Uh, interest rates will start going up. It'll get worse. It'll get close to the brink. And as you said, it'll hurt not big companies. And we don't, don't worry about that. We do worry about and it hurts the average American. And we don't want that. Well, I... Uh I thank you. We're going to get to everybody, but I'm going to yield to uh, the director of the Office of Public Engagement, former chairman of the Black Caucus in Congress, Cedric Richmond. Cedric? Thank you, Mr. President. And I'll just quickly uh, yield to who uh, your great uh, Treasury Secretary, who is an expert on this for comments on 
uh, what she thinks the ramifications are and where we're headed. So with that, Secretary Yellen. Thank you, Cedric. Thank you, Mr. President. And let me thank the business and community leaders who've, jo who have joined us here today. I wish we could be meeting to discuss another topic, finding solutions to climate change or how to better invest in the future of our economy. But the urgency of the debt limit situation demands immediate attention. And I want to be clear about my position. First, this is an urgent matter. It must be resolved immediately. Treasury will exhaust its extraordinary measures if Congress has not acted to raise or suspend the debt limit by October 18th. After that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited cash that would be depleted quickly. And as we've seen in the past, and as this group knows, even delaying action can cause harm to business and consumer confidence, raise borrowing costs, disrupt financial markets, and cause a downgrade of the U.S. credit rating. Second, let me be clear, this would be a catastrophic outcome, and this catastrophe would occur on two dimensions. The first relates to the financial system and macroeconomy. If Congress does not take action to raise the debt limit, Treasury's cash balance will reach an insufficient level to pay the nation's bills, and America would default for the first time in history. And default will call into question the full faith and credit of the United States. Our country would likely face a financial crisis, causing interest rates to rise quickly and restricting access to credit. Our fragile recovery would be thrown into reverse. We would likely experience a recession. Millions of jobs would be lost, and the pain would endure well past the resolution of the crisis. The second catastrophe would be borne by all the Americans who directly receive any sort of payment from the federal government. Every Social Security beneficiary, every family receiving a child tax credit, every military family waiting for a paycheck, or small business owners receiving a federal loan, they're all at risk. Millions are without sufficient savings to forego an expected check. And for these households and businesses, the impact would be devastating. To take one heartbreaking example, millions of seniors who depend on Social Security for their support would have to make awful choices, such as deciding whether to pay rent or buy groceries. And the same goes for parents of young kids expecting a child tax payment. Hopefully it goes without saying, this is not only bad for people, it's equally devastating for American companies. For decades, our country has earned a reputation for being a welcoming and a reliable place to do business. We respect the rule of law. We honor our debts. And this reputation has benefited us in many ways, including the ability to keep interest rates low and for the dollar to serve as the world's reserve currency. Ultimately, these benefits have helped us lead in the world economy and become a more prosperous nation. And yet today, we are staring into a catastrophe in which we surrender this hard-earned reputation and force the American people and American industry to accept all the pain, the turmoil, 
and the hardship that comes with default. It's unnecessary, and it must be avoided at all costs. Congress must address the debt limit immediately. Thanks, and I look forward to continued conversation. Thank you, Secretary uh, Yellen. And Mr. President, uh, as we heard earlier uh, from Jane, about half of adults have money in the stock market, either directly or indirectly, and we know that 50 million people rely on their Social Security checks to make ends meet. So uh, I'd now like to turn it over to Joanne Jenkins. All right. That's President Biden and uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, of course, speaking with key business leaders about the impact that a default on the debt would have if we failed to raise the debt ceiling by the October 18th deadline. Goldman Sachs putting out a note even while this was uh, going on, saying they could probably make payments for a couple of days to bondholders, but they would start delaying payments for households, uh, businesses and others. And perhaps even more consequentially, we appear to have some headlines uh, from Senator McConnell right now. So with all that said, let's bring in our Kayla Tausche for the very latest news and some reaction and analysis here, Kayla, to everything that we've just heard. Well, Kelly, the White House clearly is trying to ramp up this coordinated pressure campaign and communicate better the consequences for everyday Americans if lawmakers did not broker a compromise or do not broker a compromise uh, as soon as possible. And among some of those consequences, you heard them talk about the stock market possibly falling, uh, borrowing costs going up, small businesses not being able to get loans, Social Security payments not going out, and troops uh, not getting paid. You heard the Secretary of Defense earlier today warn of these catastrophic consequences and those concerns echoed by six former secretaries of defense as well. Uh, so clearly the White House is trying to uh, engage with these business leaders to communicate uh, some of these consequences, but it's unclear whether it will do anything to move the needle over on Capitol Hill. I'm told by sources that the White House feels it has about four Republican votes uh, to raise the debt limit, but that is uh, less than half of what it needs to actually get it done with bipartisan support. But there is hope that with some of these warning calls from business leaders with a potential drop in the stock market, one source noting that in 2011, the market fell 17 percent before a compromise was reached back then a decade ago, uh, that there could be uh, some sort of resonance uh, with lawmakers. But as we've heard from Leader McConnell, uh, Senator McConnell, there's just not really any desire or appetite to be the White House has also considered, as you heard from the president yesterday, removing the filibuster that would allow Democrats to do this on a standalone basis. But not even all Democrats are on board with that. A West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin again today reiterated that he would not support a move like that. So really, the White House feels that it has just a few days left to get Republicans on board. I'm told, Kelly, that they're trying to chart a course forward by the end of this week and figure out what their options are. Kelly. Kayla, as we see the market moving off session lows, you know, this is, a, again, a report that Senate Leader McConnell told a closed meeting of Senate Republicans that he would offer a short term uh, debt limit extension, possibly an expedited budget process. Uh, this is just early reporting uh, based on what happened in this meeting. So is this a different path forward than we would have expected just this morning? Well, it's going to be important to see the details of exactly what he is saying. If he is talking about a shortened time frame, i.e. raising the debt limit just until the December date that the government is funded until, yes, that would mean that the, the debt ceiling would not be breached and we would not in, encounter a default in the month of October, but it would only... 
uh, create a, a more nuclear or toxic situation in December when government funding and the debt limit are again relinked uh, toward the end of this year around the holiday season. On the budget process, you know that is something that uh, McConnell has said that he would be willing to get out of the way and expedite the process if Democrats uh, put one of these reconciliation packages together uh, that simply dealt with the debt limit. So far, the White House and Democratic leadership have not been willing to do that. That is sort of a last resort, uh, but it is something that they may have to consider if that appears to be the only path in the next couple of days. Kelly. I'm glad you can follow all this, Kayla. I really am, because it is complicated and convoluted, <laughs> and uh, we're trying to make sense of it moment by moment. But again, the Dow is off the lows, down about 150 points on all of these developments. Kayla, thanks for now. We'll check back in soon. Kayla Tausche in Washington there. And we'll take a quick break. Coming up, we'll talk of the price of carbon with Crane Shares adding two new carbon ETFs on top of its flagship global carbon ETF, ticker KRBN. This fund has doubled since its inception last year. It hasn't had a single day of net outflows. And we'll speak with Crane Shares about what's driving demand and how high carbon prices might go. As we go to break, here's a look at the S&P sector heat map. It's changing a little bit there. We've now got at least one group positive. It's the utilities by about five basis points. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Quite a rally off the lows. We were down 459 points uh, earlier this morning. We're only down 129 on the Dow, which is still the underperformer, down four-tenths of one percent. But look at the Nasdaq. It's 11 points away from turning positive. That gives you a sense of what's going on with the sectors today. Utilities, a moment to go in the green. There are consumer staples as well. We still see energy, the biggest lagger, down more than 1%. We've had this whipsaw effect uh, going on with energy, with natural gas this morning surging before reversing into a decline. Oil prices down as well after yesterday hitting over $79 a barrel. So again, uh, we'll keep an eye on all of these major movers for you as the market climbs 300 points off of the lows. And here are some of the stocks, even as that happens, still around their 52-week lows. Uh, Brown Foreman, Colgate Palmolive, McCormick & Co., the spice maker Fidelity, and Newmont. That gives you a sense of where the underperformance is today. Well, the price of carbon has risen dramatically, with policymakers pressing forward on their net zero emissions goals, especially in Europe, where prices hit a record high last month. That means big gains for the Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF, which in just 14 months has nearly a billion dollars under management and has doubled in price since its launch. Its holdings consist of carbon offset futures in North America in Europe. The big returns with no outflows to speak of have now convinced Crane shares to open two new carbon ETFs just this week. Luke Oliver joins me now. He's managing director and head of strategy at Crane shares. Luke, welcome. 
Hello, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, I think that the, the main question I have for you today is actually about the interplay between the carbon price and the energy crunch that we're seeing worldwide. How would you sort of explain that dynamic? Yeah, well, it's been a, it's been a very interesting dynamic. Um, carbon traditionally has had very low correlations to almost every asset class. That said, we've been in this transitionary period where, as the price of carbon increases, we've seen fuel switches away from coal, which is the worst carbon footprint, over to natural gas, which is about half the, uh, the emissions of coal. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do, move uh, power generation and industry away from, from the, the highest intensity carbon to the lower intensity greener uh, fuels. So that started to play out. We started to see a correlation between natural gas and uh, carbon. Now, that said, what's happened over the last few weeks is completely detached from that. We've seen increased demand for, for fuel, uh, liquid natural gas in China and India. We've seen a lack of supply on the, the pipeline from Russia into Europe. And we've seen a real crunch on the supply of natural gas and then therefore demand for other fuels such yeah. as back to coal, oil and so on that have really pushed up prices. So the interplay has actually broken down. This, the, the, the rise in energy prices is actually detached from, from what's been happening in the carbon prices. And if anything, carbon has underperformed despite the, the 118% return since inception. Right. It's underperformed. The, uh, the energy market. Yeah, it, it sort of peaked first, if you want to look at it that way. It's also important to yep. note that the carbon price in Europe is dramatically higher than it is in the U.S. markets, both in California and in the Northeast, where it's a very different story. But with these big meetings coming up, you know, COP26 and all the rest of it, you have to wonder if the U.S. is looking to emulate the carbon price in Europe. The problem, Luke, is we're starting to get a sense of the cost. You know, when it is more expensive to produce carbon, that means prices either go up for the end user or fewer people are producing it. I'm, I wonder what policy response uh, that might engender. And I guess in the long run, is that actually going to hurt demand for carbon? No, I think, I think well, there's, there's two things here. One, the increase in price in energy, as I mentioned, is, is way beyond the effect that carbon's having on energy prices. So there's, there's definitely some political risk that people will look towards carbon as a source for that. But it, but it really is, uh, I think the EU put out, there's only about 20% of the energy increase, uh, price increase comes from uh, the increase in carbon prices. And as you mentioned, European carbon is about $70 a ton. California is only trading about $27 a ton. And the northeast of the U.S. is only about $11 a ton. So at this point, the U.S. market is undervalued. It's not trading at, uh, at its uh, efficient price, which is significantly higher than or should be significantly higher than, than, than where it is. Yeah. So I think we're not seeing any of those effects in the U.S. yet. But what's going to drive the price aside from every other factor, is the design of these programs to reduce supply. And as you saw in Europe, they're tightening the program. It's yes. gone from 2.2% reduction each year of supply to 4.2%. And they're continuing to buy um, in, in, the, in the free market, in the, um, in the market stability reserve. So we're seeing both Europe and California going from a surplus in the market to a deficit. So that could definitely drive prices higher. Yeah, and in the U.S. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. to point out the difference with other commodities. This one you can't really measure. It's basically a way of it. That's why I joke it's more like Bitcoin. We've just said, OK, the supply of carbon is going to be capped at whatever it is, 600 gigatons left for the world to produce. And so, you know, whatever it costs somebody now to have one of those remaining pieces is whatever they have to pay for it. I guess the question is, is who who wants other than people Luke, who look at this and go, hey, great, I, I want to participate in this carbon price up, up, uh, upside. But who are the main people uh, driving demand for the core product? And tell me about these two new products you're launching. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, to, just to tie something back here, in the U.S., because I don't think we've hit 
the equilibrium price, the true price discovery, I think it is somewhat detached from fundamentals. If you go to, to Europe, the price of carbon is exactly correlated to whatever the cheapest next alternative to reduce emissions is. So we call it the marginal abatement cost curve. The price will move along that curve. And so there is, there is tangible pricing um, along, alongside these, and, and, I, and the U.S. market will move towards that curve as these markets pick up. But as for who's buying this, we're seeing people look at this as a, a, a place to add alpha to their portfolio. We're looking at the correlations being significantly uh, uh, low correlations to equities below a 0.4, uh, lower point, low, below point four to commodities. We don't even see correlations to clean, clean energy uh, stocks. And so we're seeing people add this as an alternative, as a yeah. diversifier in the portfolio. And last of all, we're seeing people actually starting to think, to your point, as prices go up, you could argue everything's been too cheap forever because carbon hasn't been priced. As carbon gets priced in, things could rise and carbon is actually your, your hedge against inflation. Yeah. It's your hedge against the drag that that could cause on equities as well. So no, we see this... I, having a lot of uses. I, I'm curious, you know, this is this is just me kind of, you know, spitting out ideas here, but tell me why every, you know, sort of state pension fund or, you know, why shouldn't they have a hedge here where they can pay out to consumers the same kinds of cash flows that are driving up their bills or something to that effect? I'm very curious to see how this all uh, matures and plays out. That's that's exactly it. This is this is one of the not only is it the, the most powerful policy tool to reduce emissions and improve climate change. It's also a, a direct cost that will go into the market that needs to go into the market and is regulated to go into the market. These programs are expanding. China, yeah. New Zealand, South Korea, huge programs. The UK will probably be added to KRBN in the near future. So this has to happen. And so, therefore, it should be in portfolios. And, and to, your, to your question on, the, on, the, on the, the vehicles themselves, KRBN is this global basket that will continue to add markets and will become this diverse global price of carbon, simplifies it for investors. Yeah. Europe most liquid, most price-efficient market. So we have a standalone product just for that market. And CCAs, for U.S. investors who favor an overweight to, to U.S., mm -hmm. we wanted to offer that in a, in a pure play. Got it. And California, at $27 a ton, is really poised, potentially, for its, uh, its shift into price discovery, which, right, to which break, we saw with... Absolutely, to sort of catch up to the European price. No, Luke, That's you did a great job of, of explaining all of this. It's great to have you on today. Luke Oliver is with Crane Shares in charge of their carbon ETFs. Now to Leslie Picker for a CNBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Just west of Dallas, four people have been injured in a school shooting. Police say it happened during a fight between students after one pulled a gun. Police are looking for an 18-year-old suspect who fled the school and is considered armed and dangerous. Three of the victims have been hospitalized. The school has been evacuated, and students are being reunited with their parents. On the news, the latest on the shooting and the hunt for the gunman, that's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. A United Nations official warns that Afghanistan's economy is on the brink of collapse. The World Food Program's Afghanistan director also says the humanitarian crisis there has escalated at an incredible pace over the past few weeks. And the Canadian government is requiring proof of vaccination on all domestic plane flights and train trips. Canadian federal workers will also have to be fully vaccinated or be placed on unpaid leave. Both measures go into effect at the end of the month. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Leslie, thank you very much, Leslie Picker. Still ahead, a tarmac tiff on Wall Street. Is gaming the future of entertainment? And one firm says to pile up on pizza. It's all in rapid fire right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Cannonball! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire, and on deck today we have airlines, retail, and some tech, too. To break the, the, everything down, we have our own Dominic Chu, as he teased off the top of the hour. Marion Montaigne is a Gradient Investments Portfolio Manager and Grassle Global CEO and Fast Money Trader. Steve Grasso himself. All right, welcome, everybody. And let's begin with this battle in the skies. Wolf Research downgrading Delta to peer perform today, saying shares have topped out at current levels. They're also getting bearish on Hawaiian and low-cost carrier Allegiant. Goldman downgraded JetBlue to neutral and American to sell, citing a weaker-than-expected revenue and pricing environment. But on Monday, Barclays upgraded Southwest and turned positive on the industry. Dom, who's got it right? You know, it's hard to say right now, only because there's been such unevenness, I guess is the best way to put it, with regard to the travel and leisure sector as of late. We know that since the pandemic lows, it's been really kind of firing on all cylinders. We're trying to get back to normal TSA screening levels. We want to see people on fuller flights. But what it comes down to is whether or not a lot of that that demand for travel has been drawn forward, right? A lot of those folks have already taken those plans, taken that time to kind of really get away and used up that vacation, used up the, t- the time and resources ahead of time. Now, here's the interesting part. I've been looking at flights for later on this year and early next. They are really, really cheap, Kelly. And I, I mean, you should look at, you know, after work today, just check it out. There are some itineraries that are that are downright bargain basements. I wonder if that kind of pricing pressure is what's leading to the, some of these downgrades. So I'm inclined for right now, from a layperson's perspective, just seeing the anecdotal evidence out there to believe that, yes, the pricing environment will not be all that great outside of maybe the holiday weeks. And Marianne, you're bullish on Southwest Airlines. You've been adding there. What about the rest of them? Uh, not so much. Uh, Southwest stands out because of the domestic uh, consumer type of travel, leisure travel. Uh, if you've been in Nashville on a weekend recently, you'd say people are traveling in, in the hordes. And uh, you would also find that Southwest doesn't depend upon international travelers and international relations to get people moving around, such as a Delta would. So um, when we saw today's higher oil inventories from the EF, IA. Uh, that made us more positive on this one. And we've got a target price in the, say, mid-80s to low-90s. Right, up, up from a $54 price today. And Steve, a final word on the airlines. Who would you add? Who would you avoid? Yeah, so, so just to all those points, if, if you want to get, if you're worried about international travel coming back and COVID uh, protocols, then you want to go with the domestic-facing. Uh, so obviously Southwest was just mentioned, but JetBlue, Spirit Airlines. But once corporate travel does come back, you want to be a buyer of Delta, Kelly. Let's remember, before we went into the pandemic, they are the only ones with an investable grade balance sheet as well. All right. And like you said, when that comes back, so you're definitely not saying it's there yet. Let's talk about cotton and sort of the laundry list of the everything shortage. Cotton prices are climbing to the highest level in over a decade now, thanks to surging demand in China. They're up 12, uh, 20 percent in just the past 12 trading sessions. So prices for clothing, other materials could be headed higher as well. Uh, could be a problem for the retailers already in difficult trading environment. Names like Stitch Fix, Macy's and Kohl's taking a beating over the past week. So, you know, obviously, Marianne, we know cotton itself is not literally a huge input here. I'm sure there are some companies more exposed than others. How would you be playing retail? 
you know, Dollar Tree. They just announced that they were going to go beyond the $1 price point, which we've been anticipating. Uh, but, you know, it's because of general supply chains, and uh, they have very, very little exposure to cotton in their offerings. Uh, here's a company that uh, is also buying back $2.5 billion worth of shares. And if you look at the chart, you'll see that it's made a double bottom recently, and it looks like it's breaking out. So we've got 25 to 30% upside in Dollar Tree. All right. Dom, what would you add? I would say that I'm wearing a cotton shirt right now. I'm wearing cotton socks. But when I think of cotton, I don't think of those things. I immediately think of denim, right? So I'm thinking about companies like Levi Strauss. True. I'm thinking about Abercrombie & Fitch, American Eagle Outfitters, some of the other names that are kind of more exposed to that denim side of things. And remember, apparently, that denim kind of style is back again in different ways, right? I was going to say, maybe that's what's driving that. Right. There's an upgrade cycle at play because people aren't just going for those skinny tight pants anymore. Sometimes some of the baggier jeans are in play right now. So if you are trying to be on fleek or trying to stay up with the styles, it might just be that cotton prices are going to play into your wardrobe inflation this time around. We're going to leave it right there. There's Levi Strauss, uh, which is in the red to Dom's point. Let's move along, talk about what's going on with Amazon. Already a major streaming player, but the CEO, Andy Jassy, saying video games could soon be its largest entertainment business. He said their new fantasy-themed online game, New World, is off to a great start. It's got an 81% rating on, I guess, their Rotten Tomatoes equivalent, Metacritic. Uh, But ironically, Amazon's Twitch gaming platform, which is used by millions around the globe, was reportedly hacked today, exposing vital source code data and payout information. This has us thinking, Steve, the stock's losing steam this year. Uh, We know that there have been struggles as well with the Activisions and Take-Twos and performance lately. Uh, Tell me what you would do with the video game category. So it's, it's, it's quite shocking to me that all of these video game uh, categories, as you, as you mentioned, are negative uh, for the year. Activision is down 16%. Take-Two is down 20%. Electronic Arts is down 6% all year to date. What did we hear from Netflix the other day, too, Kelly, that they were going to add that gaming angle? And that's been in, in rumors or in talks or mentioned for the last year or so. So I, I would think that Apple is, good, is big in the arcade space, Netflix is going to be there. Amazon is going to be there. I would be a buyer of all three, quite frankly. All right. We see Netflix really strongly performing after adding video games. Marianne, you're bullish on Amazon still, but maybe sort of modestly 20% upside? Yeah, 20% is still a good amount. Uh, The reason that we like this company is because their web services are the largest part of the company and the fastest growing. They have the highest margins. Uh, and they've got a superior 40% share globally in web services. Uh, the fact that they're going to have games as their largest uh, portion of the entertainment business isn't a surprise. Uh, and also, uh, looking near term, my understanding from talking to manufacturers is that their uh, priorities are the online platforms as mm. opposed to brick and mortar. So that's why you're seeing empty shelves, but you can get your things online. Mm. And uh, Amazon stands to benefit. Yeah, the, the big players always will get it, you know, be, free, be in the front of the line. Dom, a final word here. I mean, when it comes to video games, there was so much sentiment concern given some of the crackdowns that we saw out of China. You wonder whether or not the publishers like a Take-Two or EA are going to benefit longer term, not just because of the shift away from some of those types of areas to focus on the U.S. consumer, but also just in general, because that content still remains very paramount. It's a huge industry. And by the way, if you take a look at the remember the pandemic lows till now, video gaming had been seen as a real beneficiary there. So it might be one of those trends.
trends that sticks around for the longer term. All right. We're out of time for pizza, so we'll leave it with the domino. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, guys. I'm Marianne Montaigne, uh-huh. Steve Grasso, and Dominic Chu. Shifting to real estate, the death of New York City has been hotly contested, and the folks who bet on the Big Apple surviving seem to be right. At least in the office sector, Christina Partsinevelis is in Manhattan's newest skyscraper, One Vanderbilt, with that story. Christina? Well, Kelly, the real estate market is eager to welcome back a burst of leasing activity. It's actually the best quarter since 2019 here in New York. So what better way to show you from 91 floors above Manhattan at the one Vanderbilt? I'm actually at the summit right now, which is only open to the public on October 21st. But if we're going to break down the numbers, let's talk about leasing volume that has increased 51% compared to last year at this time. Sounds good. Occupancy rate in this particular building is well above 90%, but that may not be a barometer for the rest of Manhattan. Listen in. On peak days, we're at about 35% occupancy in our portfolio. So one third of the, uh, of the building space is now being occupied. That obviously has a long way to go. We need to get back to pre-pandemic levels where 85, 90% was utilized on a daily basis. And with that, you're seeing several of the real estate REITs climbing over the last little while. But in New York City, they're still down over the past six months. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Thank you very much. That floor is super, super cool looking. I do have to say it's a beautiful view. Well, all right, we've got some breaking news out of Washington. Some more, I should say. Elon Moy with the latest. Elon. Well, Kelly, two sources have now confirmed to me that Republicans are planning to offer Democrats an exit ramp to the debt ceiling standoff. Now, details are still emerging, but I am told that resolution could include a short-term debt limit extension that would allow Democrats the time to raise the debt ceiling through the reconciliation process. Now, Punchbowl is reporting that that short-term extension could last through the month of November, making the deadline coincide with the government funding deadline uh, that would give Republicans and Democrats that fiscal cliff in order to urge them into action later on in the year. Of course, we'll see if Democrats accept any potential deal that Republicans offer, but it does seem like an exit ramp is in sight. Guys. All right, Elon, thank you very much. Some key details there with the Dow down only 121 points and the Nasdaq a moment ago was briefly positive. Shall we talk about the worker shortage hitting the tech industry as the skills gap does make it ever more difficult to find qualified workers? But ed tech company Multiverse is hoping to change that by partnering with names like Google and Microsoft to train candidates. Joining me now, John Thompson is chairman of the board of Microsoft and an angel investor in Multiverse. And Ewan Blair is founder and CEO of Multiverse. Ewan, what is Multiverse? It sounds fun. So we're building an outstanding alternative to college and to corporate training through professional apprenticeships. And they're focused on tech, digital, and professional services careers. And we place those choosing not to go to college into apprenticeships with great companies like Google, Morgan Stanley, Facebook, ClassPass. And we also reskill people already in employment in things like data analytics, project management, and software engineering. John, how acute is this problem? Is Microsoft among the other tech giants experiencing it? Well, the whole notion of talent availability in tech is acute. Make no mistake about that. And Microsoft and every other industry or every other company in the industry is impacted by that. However, I think if you were to think back four or five years ago, there was a notion that said every company would become a tech company. 
And therefore, every company would have to build the right talent pool in order to take advantage of what tech can do to move those companies along. And that's only become exacerbated by the last, let's say, 12 to 24 months for sure. I think a related problem is the growing cost of, quite frankly, getting a graduate or an undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole notion of uh, debt being created for college degrees is exponentially beyond where it was when I went to college 50 years ago. So it's just a huge, huge problem. And having something like Multiverse that allows companies to invest in talent and them not have to worry about whether or not they are debt constrained when they're done with that, that's a huge, huge process problem that should improve the outcome for all companies around the world. So you and this is open to people 18 to 26 years old with a high school diploma who do not have a bachelor's degree. You get to fill out a profile of your skills and interests, get matched with an apprenticeship. Over a 15 month period, you work nine to five. You get paid for it. It's free. Like I said, you earn the salary. Multiverse doesn't. T- what is the catch? I just show. Yeah, I just the, you just hand me a job. What is this like? You know, the, like one of those buzz quizzes. There is no quizzes? catch. This, this is, is yeah. This is the great thing about it. It's such a slam dunk. How do you, you make money? Support the salary. So we charge employers, and it's right that employers pay for this because they need access to those skills, but also they need access to different types of talent. There is no more pressing issue for corporate America right now than creating a workforce that reflects the diversity of the country. Yeah. And you cannot address that shortfall through college. Dropouts are high. It's hugely expensive, as as John alluded to. And degree requirements are screening out two-thirds of Black Americans and 79% of Hispanic Americans. So we've got a real issue if we don't address this. And I know it's not open to people with a bachelor's degree, but I do think there's probably a segment even there that could benefit from something like this. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. I'm glad we could uh, get this in today, and we'll leave it there. Ewan Blair from Multiverse and John Thompson, who is the chair of Microsoft. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in on a very busy afternoon. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.